Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Podcast, episode 47. I'm Chris Webster. And I'm April Camp Whitaker. On today's show, we talk to Marilyn Martorano about the original rock music, lithophones. Let's dig a little deeper. All right, welcome back to the Archaeology Show. April, how's it going? It's not too bad on my end. Nice. I'm enjoying the Midwest, and it seems so lovely after Phoenix. (laughs) <laughs> With all the hoboobs there, I, w- I could imagine. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, uh, today we've got uh, a great guest on. And, and April, in the last episode that we recorded, uh, actually, I think it was not in that episode, but while we were talking, you know, she mentioned this person that dealt with rocks that make sounds. And I was like, what are you talking about? Rocks that make sounds, all these different things. I don't know if that's how I'm remembering it or not, but I was like, what is going on here? And then started looking at some of the stuff that we were sent and it's just kind of amazing. So the the, uh, the guest that we're bringing on today is Marilyn Martorano and she's going to talk to us about lithophones. Welcome to the show, Marilyn. Thank you for having me. Before we start, why don't you give the audience a little idea about who you are and what you're you know, brief pedigree as as an archaeologist? Well, I've worked as an archaeologist. I have a master's from Colorado State University, and I've worked as an archaeological consultant for a long time now, I guess 40 years. So that sort of dates me, but uh, most of my work has been in Colorado and in the Rocky Mountain region. And one of the things I've studied, my research interests include culturally modified trees and also some of the early Spanish sites like the old Spanish trail resources in the Southwest and now lithophones. Okay. So what got you, what got you interested in lithophones? Well, Hey, before we get there, what is a lithophone? Okay. Well, a lithophone litho is Greek for stone and phone means sound So a lithophone is a musical instrument that consists of a purposely selected rock, and it can either be unmodified or very modified. And what you do is you tap it or rub it with friction, and it produces musical sounds. How how often do you find that these are modified versus unmodified? What I mean, is it really more of a random occurrence and they find something that sounds good or do they adjust them slightly? I think it really depends. There are basically two types of lithophones. One is a stationary lithophone. So that could be like a big boulder that actually has acoustical properties. And so that would basically be unmodified. And the ones that we've been studying from the San Luis Valley in South Central Colorado are highly modified. So someone shaped them and it took a long time, I think, to shape them. So it really depends on what you're looking at. As a person walking around on a landscape, how do you 
select a rock that can be or is a natural, can be modified into a lithophone or is a natural lithophone. I mean, walking around, there's all sorts of rocks. And, you know, if I tap them, they make rock noises. But what is, you know, for our, our listeners, what is kind of that difference between sort of the clunking you get when you tap a rock versus the tonal qualities that make something a lithophone or a possible lithophone? Right. Most rocks in general don't make acoustical sounds or musical sounds. So only certain rock types have those properties. For example, sandstone is not one of those that has acoustical properties. It's not dense enough. And so when you tap on it, you can hear it being tapped, but it doesn't make a musical sound. But there are certain types of rocks that are very dense, like basalts or granites, um, schist or petrified wood. All of those types of rocks are very dense. And if they're the right shape, uh, the right form, and you tap on them, they actually make a musical sound. So there are specific rock properties that people are selecting these for and using to turn them into musical instruments. Yes. So we don't know exactly how they did this, if they were just walking around. And if you've ever been around percussionists, they tend to tap mm-hmm. on everything. Um, <laughs> or at least my daughter was is a percussionist. And they tend to do that, tap on the piano, on everything. And so I can just sort of imagine people thousands of years ago that were musicians, and maybe they did the same thing. And that's how they perhaps realized that certain rocks did make musical sounds. That's really interesting. So are lithophones, are they sort of everywhere? Does it seem like most cultures have their own version of a lithophone? Are these really culturally or regionally specific? That's what really surprised me when I started doing my research, because lithophones have been found all over the world in all different cultures. They're found in Europe, the Far East, Africa, The South Seas, I just found some called bellstones that uh, exist in Hawaii. And there's some in China, in Vietnam, South America. But for some reason here, the only lithophones that have been formally recognized in the Southwest are what are called kiva bells. And they are lithophones that are made of either unmodified or very minimally modified rocks. Whereas the ones that we've been studying from the San Luis Valley in Colorado are highly modified and they're more similar to some of the ones found in other parts of the world. Uh, how do you know culturally how these were, how these were used? Do we have some, some, some more recent evidence of these being used by cultures um, or is it just that these were found and, and we know what we're looking for now and they happen to make a sound and we're assuming sort of an intent and in how they were used? I guess we don't really know exactly how these were used, the ones that we found anyway, but Mm -hmm. ones that have been found throughout the world apparently had different sorts of uses, ceremonial, uh, ritual types of uses, and uh, perhaps even just everyday uses um, to ring a bell, maybe to get somebody's attention, perhaps. Um, So just looking at a lithophone, you don't really know how it was used culturally. But apparently they were used in different ways, but it sounds like 
ceremonial and sort of ritual uses are more common. I noticed that in some of the videos that you sent us, which we'll link to some of this in the uh, in the show notes, but I noticed in some of the videos they were either laying on something, like they were suspended off the table a little bit or off the, the surface that they were on, like sometimes they were just laying on a piece of rope or some sort of cordage, and then they were hit with, uh, with a mallet. That seems like uh, quite the evolution of several technologies coming along lines to to make that a usable thing for, as a from a musical standpoint or at least just a an auditory standpoint. Um, do some of these do they make sound if you're holding it in your hand and then you hit it with the mallet, or does it have to be suspended? And then you know what about the what about the mallet? I mean, can you hit these on each other? Can you did you have to hit it with something else? I'm curious how it developed. That's those are great questions. Uh, those are some of the things that we were trying to figure out when we studied these, and. What we have learned is that the way they make a sound is based on physics. So it's the physics of how sound waves travel through different materials. So when you tap on the end of one of these lithophones, there are two sound waves that come out, and they call them sinusoidal curves. So they come out, they cross each other, then they split again, they cross each other again, And those two locations where they cross are called the acoustical nodes or dull zones. And those are the two spots where you can either put them on something, you can either hold them in your hand vertically, or you could suspend them horizontally. And if you hold them there, it doesn't muffle the sound. But if you just put them flat, or if you would hold them somewhere else, it definitely changes the whole sound. So that's why they're laid out that way. Or if you look at photographs of them used around the world, you'll notice they're always suspended or held by those two dull zones or those acoustical nodes. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty complicated. It's based on physics, which, (laughs) you know, um, I'm sure people in the past didn't take physics classes, but they could figure it out pretty easily because if you hold it in the wrong spot, it doesn't make the nice sound. And if you hold it in the right spot, then you get that ringing. So is there a way to identify these dull zones other than just holding them? Or would people have sort of found, or people do, and would have found these lithophones uh, and sort of held them in different areas until they figured out kind of the dull zones and the tonal qualities? I'm guessing they did it by ear, which is actually how I tried it. I knew the dull zones were about 25% of from each end. And that's based on physics, but you can also just tap on them down the length of the artifact and you can hear the difference. You can hear where those dull zones are. So I would just mark it with a little piece of tape so I'd know when I was laying them out to play them. And I'm sure people in the past figured that out pretty quickly. Yeah, that's, that's, that's again, part of the, uh, the really interesting part of this to me is, is how they figured out that these would make sounds because I mean, I've walked across, you know, probably millions of rocks <laughs> since I'm 43 years old. <laughs> and, and, and I've never once thought, Oh, I wonder if this would make a sound if I hit it just right. You know what I mean? Like it would have to be an accidental sort of occurrence. And then, and then you try to replicate that and, and figure out, well, if this one sounds like this, then this one probably sounds like this and let's try that. And um, how much, of, how much of the sound of the rock we've talked about its shape and, and that, and and the type of rock, but how much of the sound depends on what it's hit with too? You know, the sort of mallet that you hit that with, how much of the sound depends on that? 
I think it really makes a difference. For example, I used different kinds of mallets when I was doing my research. I tried using uh, a rock that was just sort of an elongated pebble. And I also used bone, a piece of bone. I used a piece of antler. And then I used various types of wood. And they all make sounds. They can produce sounds. But the rock, the harder the mallet, the better the sound. That's what I mm -hmm. found during my my research. And I actually used, for my uh, research work, I used mallets that came from Amazon, but, you know, they didn't have those in prehistoric times, but they obviously had other things they could play with and just pick up a rock that was nearby that was hard. You need one that's, that's really dense, just like the lithophone itself, but then it actually makes a great sound. So it's all natural and they would have had access to all those materials to make a mallet. So I don't mm -hmm. think it was a big deal for them to come up with a mallet. I'm curious as to the sound of the lithophones. And, you know, I don't have perfect pitch or anything, but I, I have played musical instruments in the past. So I understand what certain notes sound like. And it sounded like to me on some of the videos where it was just kind of a looked like a tonal test kind of thing that they that some of the notes, I mean, they sounded like like real, you know, whole notes, not not some weird off off kind of key sort of thing, but some actual good, you know, pitch notes that I would recognize today. But who's to say what people thought of as sound in music uh, a thousand years ago or or further back? Do you find that in your research that some of these are, are matching pitches and sounds that we recognize today, or something different in general? Actually, both because they play. If you're familiar with a piano. The, the white keys are certain notes and the black keys are what are called pentatonic notes or produce a pentatonic scale. And pentatonic scales are sort of the basis for most music that we know of around the world or a lot of the music. And more than half of the notes that were produced by the lithophones when we played them are those pentatonic scale notes, so the black keys on a piano, and it, why they sound like that, we don't know. Was it the rock itself that was the thing that determined the note, or were they actually trying, through their shaping of these lithophones, trying to create a certain note or sound? And that's more what I think, is that they wanted a certain sound, because the notes that are played depend on the length of the artifact, not so much the, the width, but more the length, sort of like a xylophone, where the longer the, the pieces, the lower the note. And that's mm -hmm. the same in general with these lithophones. I suppose that makes sense. One's stone yeah. and one's wood. So Yeah. Yeah. So it, when you're studying these lithophones, how are you determining like what tone and what note they're playing? Well, that was actually kind of fun. I was working with a percussionist, Jason Reed, and he had access to a number of apps and you can just download them on your phone, like Tonal Energy Tuner. You download <laughs> it on your phone and you play the lithophone and it'll tell you what note it plays. It tells yeah. you um, what octave and it'll give you the hertz. And so that's the frequency. So the technology we have today is awesome because we can figure out all these things, whether the note is right on that pitch or 
is it sort of off of that pitch? And we recorded all of those types of things. Hmm. That's really interesting. So with this ability to tell notes and hear notes, I mean, how would tuning one of these lithophones really work if you are a prehistoric person? Would you just have to sort of, I mean, okay, I guess this, I'm going to make this a two-part question. Sorry. Um, sure. <laughs> first, it, how, I mean, it sounds like these lithophones are pretty on, you know, they're not like a little bit off. They are playing like a C sharp. So they're, you know, they are tuned to specific notes. And so how, I mean, I am not incredibly musically inclined. I'm going to confess this now. Um, and so just to be able to you have a natural ear to figure out what the tuning process is. Like, I'm just trying to envision finding, you know, a stone that is a tonal stone and the process of this, of tuning it to create specific notes and sounds and how this is all working. I mean, it seems really incredible to me. I, it is incredible when you start thinking about how they were doing this and why. Why would they want certain sounds? Were they trying to replicate something they had heard in nature? Or yeah. were they just trying to create a note that sounded good to them, to their ear? Those are the kinds of things we don't really know. But you could change the the sound by making it longer or shorter. And possibly by shaping the ends differently. That's one of the oh, things nice. that we were studying. If you look at these, they tend to have really interesting shaped ends. Some of them are sort of conical shaped. Some are come to a point. And on many of the lithophones, they have one end that's a little more rounded, say, and the other end comes to more of a point. And we don't know exactly why that is. is. Does it have something to do with the way they were made, the actual process of making them? That's something we don't know either, is how did they shape these? Would they have held it upright, say, and turned it to try and get it to be a certain shape while they're pecking on it? Um, we don't really know if those end shapes, we do know that certain end shapes don't make good sounds. So if they're flattened, if they're broken off, if they have a flat end, they don't make a good sound, and that probably has to do, again, with the, the physics of sound waves and how they go through something. So it could be that they were able to tune it different ways by making the whole thing shorter, longer, and shaping the ends a certain way. Okay. Well, I think that's a good place to take our first break, actually. We're already at... Uh... We're already at 18 and a half minutes. It goes by really fast. So let's do that. And we'll come back with some other great questions about lithophones. And, uh, and I'm curious as to, as an archaeologist, as to how to start recognizing these on sites. So we'll talk about all that on the second and or third segment. Back in a second. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 47. And we're talking about musical instruments today, uh, although they probably just look like rocks to you. But they're musical instruments, and they're called lithophones. And... You know, over the break, April had a pretty good suggestion that we tell you to actually uh, pause the podcast right now, if you have the ability to, and take a look at our show notes, because we included some links that Marilyn was nice to give us, and they are uh, videos of people playing these lithophones. And it's really just a, you know, kind of a hitting on it just to kind of test the sound it looks like. And and it's really neat to see these sounds coming out of basically stone and 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 how good it sounds actually that's that's what i was surprised at so it's amazing when you're actually listening to these being played because it doesn't i mean as an archaeologist and someone who's also worked in museums you see when you see a lithophone in these videos you'll go oh i've mm-hmm. seen things that look like that i would never <laughs> have thought that this could happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so seeing them played, I think you'll kind of go, huh, really interesting. I yeah. wonder how many things that I have walked past in the field that maybe were lithophones <laughs> or uh, could have been used or thought of that way. So I think that that's, I mean, Marilyn, that's one of our questions is how do you go about just identifying these? I mean, they, you talk a lot about how they've been misidentified as pestles and all sorts of different things. So how do we kind of move forward and start classifying these correctly and identifying them? I think for me anyway, just getting people to consider sound as a function, because normally when you look at ground stone, and I've done that for years, you think of grinding or crushing or pounding. And that's sort of an assumption, I think, that we probably have all made in the past. And so trying to get this information out to get people to consider it an alternative function like sound, I think, is the key. And I actually came up with um, some information about how to test for a potential lithophone in the field or even in a museum because it's not that hard to do, but you really do have to know how to set it up correctly and how to use a correct mallet. But I think that's the key because we've been finding them in different museums. For example, History Colorado Museum. I went into their collections with the curator and they pulled out a few things they thought could be lithophones and a couple of them were amazing. They sounded like metal bells being played and so, but nobody had ever thought of that function before. So I think it's just um, kind of rethinking how we look at artifacts. And that's what it's done for me anyway, is, is gotten me to think in a different way. So to, to play the devil's advocate here, how do we make sure that we're also not beginning to over-identify something? I, I'm a firm believer in the concept that you see something and it is real, but then you start seeing it everywhere mm-hmm. because your mind is sort of caught upon it. And I think, you know, how do we know 
that the things we're identifying as lithophones were thought of prehistorically as lithophones, and they're not just, you know, a long tubular pestle (laughs) that makes a perfect tonal note. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a really good question because I'm being asked things like that now, which is good because I think as a researcher, you want people to ask questions like that. And you want to have data that can can back up what you're talking about. And with these lithophones, I think what you have to do, and this is what we ended up doing, is looking at the actual artifact and trying to see, was it really used in a different way? Or is there use wear on it, for example, that would suggest it was used for grinding or crushing? And some of these do have a little bit of wear on them. But we don't know, after looking at these, we don't really know, was that from utilizing it as a lithophone where someone was tapping on it? Or could it have also been made, some of those marks been made by somebody who found it later on? For example, the ones we found at Great Sand Dunes National Park, they were found in an area where people have utilized that particular spot for maybe 10,000 years or more. And so, you know, people leave things and then somebody else comes along. They may either know about lithophones or not, or maybe they just pick it up because it's handy and use it for something else. But I think the key is looking at the primary use wear on it and the way it's shaped. Is it something that could have been used as a multi-purpose tool? We don't know. Or was it formally made as a lithophone and then possibly used in alternative ways. That's something we don't really know. But I think if you look at these lithophones and you actually see what they look like, they're so different than regular ground stone, like a mono, which is the hand stone, and the bottom piece, which is the metate. They're so different from that. I think that's the key to understanding what's a lithophone and what isn't, besides the sound, of course. You know, that, that's an interesting way to look at it because uh, I, I know my wife's always getting mad at me when I'm banging on things, especially in the car, just like, you know, playing drums on the steering wheel. I'm sure your husband as a musician does the same thing. But, you know, I it just makes me think. I always try to humanize this and think, man, how could this have come about? And somebody just sitting there grinding with their oddly thin and long mono and, uh, and they're just like getting bored with that and then just like, you know, start kind of doing a little percussion thing right on the edge and thinking, man, this sounds really good. And they're just kind of holding it a little differently and, you know, just trying to figure out how this would have come about. Cause, because, you know, were they, were they looking for something else and, and found this accidentally or was it the kind of thing where, yeah, they did have a really terrible piece of ground stone that they were trying to work with or create. And it turns out it had other properties and, you know, they started looking for that, you know, for those sorts of things. But, my my thinking is that, um, the the big question I have as an archaeologist is uh, that April's already sort of alluded to is is what kind of sites are these found on? What are these? What's the associated material? Are, are you finding these just out in the wild and and say, hey, that looks great, let's try it out, or or are these being consistently found in association with other things? That's a good question. The ones that we were studying mostly were found by collectors, and so they mm-hmm. were picked up off the surface and unfortunately don't have a lot of archaeological context, which is what you really want. Mm -hmm. Once it's picked up, you know, you lose that information about how it was used and that sort of thing. 
There is one that we have that came from a dated site, and it's called the Fishbone site, and it dates to about 6,000 years ago. And so we don't really know, you know, how old a lot of these are, because unless you find it in some sort of context where you can date it, you don't really know. But right. a lot of them were found on the surface. Um, one of them, one of the longer ones that we found, it's over two feet long and weighs about nine pounds. It was found in the 1930s. And the guy actually wrote the story of finding it down because he remembered it. He was on horseback and he saw it. It was upright. So we think it was probably cached. And it was upright in the sand, about six inches were sticking out. And he saw it, got off his horse and decided to kick it because he thought it would just flip out because he figured it was short. And he <laughs> kicked it really hard. And he said uh, he got a big surprise because <laughs> it sort of threw him, you know, uh, it didn't go anywhere. So he ended up digging it out. But so th that's a whole nother question was if these were used by hunter gatherers and it weighed nine pounds, you'd think you probably wouldn't carry it around too much. So maybe you would cash it at a place where you came every year and, you know, you could meet up with some other people and perhaps have a rock concert. That's, mm. that's my little joke about these is it was the first hard rock music, but nice. in, in reality, that's what they are. They're, they're musical instruments that at least in the San Luis Valley, there are a lot of them. For some mm -hmm. reason, we don't know why. And I think there are other places too, but people just haven't thought of, again, haven't thought of the function for sound. And so I think they're going to show up in other places. In fact, I've had people send me photos of some things that look just like them from California and from New Mexico. So I think they're around and people just didn't know what they were. Yeah, I think Nevada would be ripe for it too. You know, we have a lot of really dense rock up here. And if you are if you are thinking that they could be associated with, you know, say ritual type practices and things like that, um, something else that we have a lot of that's also associated with that often is rock art. And I wonder if a reanalysis of some old rock art sites and some of the artifacts that have been found near and in association with could turn out to be these uh, lithophones. It'd be an interesting thing to look at. I know we actually found a rock art panel that has what somebody called a xylophone player on it. They had called mm -hmm. it that before they heard about lithophones. So my thought is, who knows, maybe we can find rock art that actually depicts someone playing a lithophone. Nice. Wouldn't surprise me. We just haven't really looked for that. Do you think that these were played singly or in sets of lithophones? That's another really good question. Most of the ones that were found that we have studied were found by themselves. They weren't found with other lithophones, but there have been groups of these found. For example, in New Mexico, they found a group of 22 of them wow. and at a Pueblo. And they're, of course, different sizes. So it would really be interesting to study those, the sounds they make to see what kind of musical scale they play uh, what different notes do they play? Were they played like that all the time together? Or were some of them played individually? 
or perhaps different people had lithophones and would come together and play them. Those are the kinds of things we don't really know, but it'd be interesting to study some of these caches to learn more about a group of them and what kinds of sounds and scales that they play. I mean, are there ethnographic parallels or examples that we see in the United States or other parts of the world that kind of help explain this? Well, in the Southwest, Dr. Emily Brown has studied Kiva bells, which are the lithophones that are found at Pueblos. And these are pretty recent in time as far as dates, but they do have ethnographic, some ethnographic evidence that these were used primarily in ritual at the Pueblos. And apparently some of them may have been used with more than one lithophone. Others were used as a, as a kiva bell where they'd hang it and ring the bell to call men to the kiva, for example. So we just don't know a lot. I think we, we have a lot of questions still. That's really interesting. So are, are people doing um, kind of ethnoarchaeology or, or not ethnoarchaeology, experimental archaeology? Are you, are people trying to recre recreate some of these lithophones so you can experiment? I mean, you've talked a lot about, you know, it seems like length rather than width makes a difference, the shaping of the ends, um, and just the process of how do you go about tuning a lithophone? Um, so are people starting to experiment with this and actually make our own lithophones? I think we should. And I know that there is a, a person who is a percussionist in the northern end of the San Luis Valley who has found what he called singing stones in the alluvial deposits there. And he just was digging holes for fences and noticed that some of the rocks, when they hit each other, would make sounds. So he started collecting them, and he's collected a number of these over about 30 years and now he has them laid out like a lithophone, and he actually plays them. And hmm. so they aren't modified, though. These are unmodified, and, and, but it's something that we could learn from, I think. If you got one of those, you could record it maybe. And then what if you made it shorter? What if you made it thinner or reshaped the end? What would it do to the sound? So I think replication would be an amazing way to help us understand these better. It sounds like one of those great um, experimental archaeology projects where you get to collaborate with people who are you know, musicians and uh, percussionists and kind of understand the techniques a little bit more. So oh, that sounds yeah. really interesting. In your experience, Marilyn, what would somebody look for if they're an archaeologist or, or maybe they're just interested? What, what would somebody specifically look for? What are some of the key giveaways for what a lithophone looks like? I know we've talked about some attributes, but lay it, let's lay it out in this one specific segment here. And, and also, are there, uh, are there anything that we're carrying with us right now that we could use as kind of an ad hoc mallet to maybe try it out, you know, like the end of our trowel or something like that, the handle? <laughs> sure. I think you could use, possibly use your trowel handle if it's hard enough, but I think a piece of rock, just a hard rock that you find, a long piece so that when you tap on something, you want some wrist action, just like the, the percussionists do when they play something. Uh, mm -hmm. They don't just, you aren't pounding on it to try it out. But um, I think if you're in the field and you find something that you think could possibly be a lithophone, um, you could use a rock 
and hold it about 25% of the way of the, you know, toward the end, one end or the other, and then just hold it up and use another rock and tap on it and see if you get a sound. And that hmm. would give you some idea whether it's actually a lithophone or not. And, and what about uh, what about shaping? Uh, you've mentioned different shapes and things like that. How, in your experience, have these been shaped? Is it just like grinding on them or actual maybe flint napping? Or does it have to be sort of rounded edges on these things? I, I know that there was a lot of variation in the ones you sent pictures of. Yeah, it really depends. Some of them seem to have been shaped by flaking, but most of them seem to have been shaped by pecking. And if you look Mm -hmm. closely at these, they have hundreds of little peck marks on them. So somebody knew that they could shape it by pecking on it, but of course you couldn't hit it too hard or it'd break it. But you wanted to be able to shape it, so you'd have to know how hard you could hit it. So a lot Mm -hmm. of them have been shaped by pecking. And if you look at these closely, you'll see some of them have some polish on them. Some have striations, which I think some of those striations may have to do with them playing it. And so created Mm -hmm. during the actual playing of the instrument. And I don't know how they, they shaped them originally. In other words, what did these look like prior to being shaped? Because you don't find natural rocks that look like something that's rounded and two feet long. So they made it from something. We aren't sure exactly what it looked like originally, but they uh, apparently would be able to find something that had sounds and then shape it into this particular shape. So grinding, Mm -hmm. pecking, and polishing, those are all characteristics of the surface of these instruments. All right. Well, that's a perfect location for our final break, and we will come back and wrap up this discussion on lithophones in just a second. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. And we're back for the final segment of episode 47 of the Archaeology Podcast. And we are talking with Marilyn Martirano about lithophones. And I had... Uh, a question following on something you mentioned, I think, in the first segment, uh, you just kind of mentioned it offhand, but you found some of these at Great Sand Dunes National Monument. So first, tell us, because I don't think I've been to this one, where exactly is Great Sand Dunes National Monument? And then what, what's what been found there? Well, it's actually a park now. It used to be a monument, but now mm-hmm. it's actually one of the national parks. And it's found in south central Colorado. Okay. And it's got a lot of sand, which uh, makes sense. <laughs> But it also has a lot of archaeological, it has resources there that date back to Folsom times and even Clovis times. So that Hmm. area has uh, springs, for example, that apparently attracted, of course, animals and people. Mm -hmm. And there were plants there. And so the area was used for probably thousands and thousands of years. And for some reason, a lot of these lithophones are found in the sands near some of the springs. So what that means uh, exactly, we 
don't really know, except that people utilize those areas for a long time. So you did a bunch of work studying the lithophones that have been found at uh, Great Sand Dunes. Can you just, I mean, I I have a secret advantage because I've read the report, um, but could you, would you mind detailing, I mean, the, the level of research and analysis that you did kind of stepping through, you know, what are the materials that people are using and doing some XRF analysis? And so could you just detail for our readers, sort of our listeners, I read too much apparently, um, <laughs> what kind of this, this ana- analysis process was, um, because it's been very detailed and scientific. Well, I felt it had to be very detailed because this is sort of a new concept and a new artifact class that people weren't familiar with. So I felt like I should start at the beginning and take photographs of these and describe every little mark on them, describe the shape, describe how the surface looked, and just everything I could think of. I weighed them and I measured them. I tried to figure out what the material type was And I think all those things needed to be done because this is such a basic type of research. So it took a long time to do all of that, but I think hopefully it'll be worth it in the future when we're we're learning more about these, if we have that information. Yeah. So, I mean, could you, we've talked about some of the generalizations, but could you talk about what are some of the generalizations that you found? during this study? I mean, you've talked about there's certain materials and lengths, um, but, you know, what what is kind of your end takeaway message from all of the really intensive research that you did? I think the thing is, uh, especially knowing about rock material types, that is so key with these lithophones is the type of material they're made out of. And then, of course, what they look like. So if you find a rock that's just a round sort of blob, it's probably not gonna make a very nice sound. So to be a lithophone, it needs to be approximately four or a little bit more times longer than it is wide. That's sort of one of the key attributes of these, in addition to the rock type. And then of course the shape. So some pestles may look like that, but they, if you look at the ends, the ends may be flattened from using on a piece of stone. So you also need to look at the ends and look at all the characteristics of the body of these lithophones. And so it's it's really a lot of different characteristics, not just one characteristic that means it's a lithophone. And of course it needs to make a sound. And so if it doesn't, then, you know, then it's not one. But most of the ones that we've tried, if they're the right material type and the right shape, they will make a sound. Where where else can you think of in the U.S. that these have definitely been found? I know we've mentioned a couple other other states. Anything else you can think of? Well, mainly the ones in the Southwest that are called Kiva Bells, but those are unmodified. And so there was a researcher who wrote an article in American Antiquity, Duncan Caldwell, who found a couple of these lithophones that look similar to ours. They're long and rounded in shape. And he found them in New England. And so there are some in New England. And I've seen pictures of some that look like lithophones. We haven't tested them yet from California. 
So I think they're around in different places. It's just they haven't been identified. Where, where would you think, uh, based on what you know of different archaeology types and even material available in locations, if you were to specifically go looking for lithophones, where would you look? Looking for the material types or actually looking for lithophones? Just just knowing of an area, you know, picking some place in the United States, for example, that says, well, I know they've got this kind of material and I know they had these cultures that were around at this time period, you know, that, that maybe mirrors other things. Like where where do you think is a good location that maybe they haven't been identified yet that they, they could be, you know, possibly? I think probably anywhere where there's volcanic rock or uh, hard metamorphic types of rocks, but especially, say, in New Mexico, for example, because there's a lot of volcanic activity uh, that occurred there. And probably anywhere in the Great Basin, you know, there's so many places where there were, there were volcanic things happening. So I just think it could be pretty much anywhere, maybe not so much out on the plains. Although I have found some celts and adzes that make amazing musical sounds. And so it could be that in the Midwest, you could also find some or even a little bit further east. But that's a good question. Nobody's tested them. So right. I just think we need to kind of expand our horizons a little and think out of the box and, and look at a lot of different artifacts that maybe we don't quite know what they are and, and test them. And that's what I'm doing is I'll try any artifact and set it up and test it for sound. So are you getting resistance from people on this idea? I mean, it feels like in archaeology, anytime you propose something <laughs> really different and new, sometimes you get this sort of um, subtle kickback. Um, oh, yes. And hesitancy to, you know, immediately accept some of these concepts. Um, so are you finding some of that with this? Of course. And I it bug, bugs you in a way. But then when you think about it, that's what we should welcome as researchers because we want people to question everything we do so that we can come up with better data to support whatever our ideas are. And I think for me, as far as these lithophones, you can talk about them all day, but what convinces people is if you have some, they see them and then they hear them. So hearing them is the key. And I think that's what's really convinced archeologists who were sort of poo-pooing this thought uh, when I actually show them the lithophones and play them, then they, they are just uh, amazed, just like I was when I played one the first time. Yeah. So how how did you get hooked onto this concept? I'm not sure. Did we ask that? I don't remember asking I that question. Directly. I mean, yeah. Yeah. How did you first kind of say, oh, these objects, maybe they are lithophones? Like how, I mean, that's just... It's such an interesting concept. Yeah. That's a good question because we had studied them thinking they were pestles, you know, giant pestles, but why? We just couldn't understand it and it didn't make sense. And so we put them back in the museum drawers and then a colleague of mine, David Killam, actually sent me a YouTube video of this researcher from France who had drawers of these also in the Museum of Man. And he didn't know what they were either, but he happened to tap on them and realized they were lithophones. And so when I saw this video, I just thought, well, what the heck? I had never thought of sound. And I thought it was a crazy idea, but I set them up like he had in the video. And I played some of them, and I just couldn't get over it. 
And so it kind of went from there. I actually was able to write a grant um, and get an assessment grant from the state uh, historical fund. And that's kind of how all this happened. It was pretty much an accident, I guess. (laughs) And now here you are, (laughs) the expert on uh, Southwestern lithophones. Yes. (laughs) So it sounds like there are examples of this in places like France. And I, I know in the report there were pictures of um, like giant stationary lithophones in places like Tanzania. So basically rocks that people have been coming to and hitting and using. So it seems like this is sort of one of those ideas that generates over and over, you know, around the world kind of independently. I think so. There are actually two places in the U.S. where you can go play boulders. One of them is called Ringing Rocks Park in Pennsylvania, and the other one is just called the Ringing Rocks. It's on BLM land in Montana, and they allow you to go there. You take your rock hammer, and you go out, and you can play these boulders. And it's pretty amazing because uh, they make different sounds, and there are actually recordings of those on the Internet, so you can Google that and and go listen to somebody playing some boulders. Nice. I, I like that one you sent of... Uh... I think it was a YouTube video from Vietnam. I mean, that woman was playing a massive one. It was uh, so huge. Yeah. Yeah. That was really cool. And they still play those today in Vietnam, Mm -hmm. apparently. Yeah. The thing that gets me is, I mean, I need to know what the, what the notes look like. Like I'd have, I'd have letters or something written down. All those rocks look the same to me, but she knew exactly (laughs) what she was doing. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. You know, a, a big question I've got as we're, as we're wrapping up near the end here is, when that woman was playing in that video from Vietnam, she's playing that massive lithophone. She was accompanied by a guy on a drum and drums are something that is just about ubiquitous across the planet. Because I think when we're bored as humans, we just bang on things and some things (laughs) sound better than they don't than others. Right. And, and even say down in the Southwest, you know, flutes. um, I mean, obviously the, the Navajo flute and something that comes to my mind when I think of that. And those are things that if you asked anybody, they might say, you know, what 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 uh, musical instruments did ancient cultures play? And they would say drums. How come lithophones are something that we're kind of just learning about recently? Like, how long have lithophones been? I guess I guess known about as an ancient uh, or or prehistoric cultural musical instrument. And and why do you think it's taken this long? Well, it's my understanding that lithophones they have been dated back thousands of years. So people knew about them and played them for thousands of years, but why we didn't really think about that or consider that as a function, um, I don't know why. I guess just because we assume certain things or we're taught that in school and you just assume it um, until something happens that kind of blows your mind and then (laughs) you change your mind about it. Um, So I don't know. They're known all over the world and other cultures know about them. But for some reason here, at least in Colorado and most of the U.S., they really weren't known until recently. Hmm. You'd think there'd be, with with a couple hundred years of, of crossover here in the United States, you know, some ethnographic evidence that uh, lithophones, maybe we'd have to dig back through people's journals and, and maybe they did mention them, but we didn't really understand what they were saying. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, is there anything that we haven't gone over or that we haven't asked you that you really want to, that you really want to get out about lithophones? Well, I think for me, just the whole concept of 
lithophones and thinking about music and thinking about how important music is to us in our culture today, um, it really makes me think maybe it, it shouldn't be a surprise that people appreciated music and made musical instruments thousands of years ago. And mm -hmm. these are probably some of the most simple and yet complex musical instruments that you could create. And it's just um, really important, I think, to know about these and to understand them. And, and I just think they're pretty cool. I, I just thought of one more question before we ask our final question. Um, does temperature affect the, uh, the sound? Um, I know rock doesn't really adjust very much when it's cold versus really hot, but I was wondering if, if temp the effect of temperature on the sound has been tested. I don't think it's been tested, but that's a good thought. I mean, why not? Yeah. Check it right. out. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I, I don't think rock contracts and expands like metal does <laughs> or even right. wood, right. but maybe a little bit, you know, if it's like really cold versus really hot or something. I know some of these rocks sitting out in the desert, you know, when you go out and do survey, man, you can't even pick them up in the middle of the day exactly. in the summertime. It's so hot. So yeah, I think that'd have some kind of impact on it. Yeah. Good future research. And <laughs> and there are a lot of questions I have, you know, how old they are, um, what's the geographical extent. I mean, we just have so many things that we really don't know yet. And that's exciting, I think, for future research is to try and do some of this um, exploration into understanding them better. That's a great segue into our really final question, which is, where are you taking this next? I mean, what are your kind of next steps and next goals for this project and this research? Well, now that I finished the report, which was a big deal, and I turned that in, I'm hoping to follow up on some of the pages of research questions that I came up with. And I've already been doing some of those things. For example, looking in museums to see if they have something that could be a lithophone and talking them into letting me try tapping on it. And I just think that's going to expand our knowledge about these in general. And there are just a lot of other questions. For example, where did they get this rock? Can we actually figure out where a lithophone quarry was? I mean, is that possible? Mm -hmm. But that would be exciting. And so there are just so many questions that I would like to still learn about. And so that's sort of my goal is to get the message out about these and then also do some of the research that needs to be done to fully understand these. And I think it's a long process. So maybe some young grad student could kind of take this over and, and go with it. Nice. Yeah. Well, any grad students listening, now you have your dissertation. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I, I love this, by the way, and and this is you know we're gonna we're gonna wrap it up right here. But I, as a as a cultural resource management archaeologist, you know I'm constantly on on sites and thinking, and, and I'm constantly looking at them and trying to think about them in a different way. You know, what is the the preconceived notions that we have walking up to something is oh it's got this this and this it's textbook, but you know is the textbook accurate? <laughs> it's probably exactly. not. You know, I I could think of probably many times that I've seen rocks now that I, that I, that could have been lithophones just thinking about it. Cause some of the places we've been, that's highly geologically active. Um, you know, a lot of basalt, a lot of really dense rock. And, um, maybe these could have been created naturally when there was water action or something like that. You get a long piece and it just sits in the river for a while and who knows what happens, but, um, I don't know. It's something to think about. And I hope any archeologist that happened to be listening to this will 
we'll take a, a look at some stuff that they've seen uh, a little differently now. That's my hope as well. So yeah. that's great. Okay. Well, thanks a lot, Marilyn. And uh, for the audience, be sure to check out all our links in the show notes and uh, learn something new about lithophones. And if you uh, if you see any fun rocks out there on your hike, I mean, make sure they're not an archaeology site. So, you know, it could be. <laughs> but uh, take them home. Make yourself a little musical instrument. There you go. All right. Well, thanks a lot. And uh, we'll be back next time. Thanks for listening to the Archaeology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. You can provide feedback using the contact button on the right side of the website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeology. Or you can email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Please like and share the show wherever you saw it so more people can have a chance to listen and learn. Send us show suggestions and follow ArcPodNet on Twitter and Instagram. This show was produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network. Opinions are solely those of the hosts and guests of the show. However, the APN stands by their hosts. Special thanks to the band Sea Hero for letting us use their song, I Wish You'd Look. Check out their albums on Bandcamp at seahero.bandcamp.com. Check out our next episode in two weeks, and in the meantime, keep learning keep discovering new things, and keep listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Have an awesome day. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, in Reno, Nevada, at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pro.